Olympic Channel podcast. Set. The roar, the celebration before the race is even over. Pumping his chest, arms outstretched, smiling. An Olympic gold, a world record in the 100 metres. This doesn't happen often. It's 10 years since Usain Bolt's incredible 2008 win in Beijing. The race that shook the world. If you ask Usain, show yourself to other galaxies in, in nine seconds, I think that's the race he'd use. That was Atto Bolden. My name is Ed Knowles, and this is the official Olympic Channel podcast. Each week we find for you the very best Olympians, and we ask them to go in deep about the biggest Olympic talking points. We want you to think just like an Olympian. Olympic Channel podcast. Coming up, four-time Olympic medalist, coach and commentator Atto Bolden dissects what made that race one of the best ever. I don't think that there's any race that had that utter shock. Plus, Atto speaks about the memorable celebrations, attitudes to Bolt's attitude and an untied shoelace. Olympic Channel Podcast. Big moments in sport happen every so often. The spectacle, the drama, it's what makes following sport so exciting. It's why we watch. Then there are some moments that stand above sport, above the Olympic Games and become something else. Usain Bolt has retired from running now and is looking to join up with the Central Coast Mariners in Australia in an attempt to become a footballer. Yet he remains the fastest human being on the planet ever. And in that moment, on August 16th, 2008 in Beijing, he was moving faster than anyone had gone before over 100 metres. He recorded a time of 9.69 seconds. The world's biggest stage, the world's fastest time, both incredible in their own right, but what made it memorable can't really be written down on paper. He slowed down before the finish. His shirt was untucked. His shoe was untied. There was complete joy on his face. It was pure. It takes you back to being a kid and running in the playground, pretending to be at the Olympic Games. And here was the fastest person on earth running with a child-like innocence. It was captivating. Now, the world record was broken by Bolt again in Berlin a year later in 2009. But the race in Beijing still remains the most memorable. Atto Bolden agrees. And he's been at the stadium every single time Usain Bolt has broken a world record. And also says that that moment was simply iconic. So, as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the race that shook the world, I gave one of the most knowledgeable minds in athletics a call. Olympic Channel Podcast. I don't think that there's any race that had that just sort of utter shock because the the nature of his acceleration, the, the, the celebration at the end, the magnitude of the stage, 
I mean, you know, the next year he, you know, the next year he broke the world record in the hundred again, uh, and and that's the existing world record, and it's a phenomenal race for a lot of reasons. And as a coach, uh, I probably have studied the 2009 world record more, but in terms of sheer, you know, if you had to show somebody, if you had to show an alien that landed here, you know, the the, the fastest you know, human that has ever walked the face of the earth. I don't think you show his world record in 2009. I think you show that one because it's just the most, um, you know, jaw dropping example we have of, you know, of what somebody can do against the other seven fastest humans on the planet. I mean, the celebration slowdown is just so memorable. I I remember my jaw was just like, it takes a lot for me to be speechless, like really does. And I, and I was absolutely, I couldn't think of the words. It was just, how iconic of a moment do you think that was? If you asked Usain, um, you know, show yourself to, you know, to other galaxies in, in nine seconds, I think that's the race he'd use. Um, he set a lot of world records. He's, you know, obviously won a lot of Olympic gold medals, a lot of big races, um, had a lot of memorable performances, but I think he himself would probably use that one because, uh, well, first of all, it's his first one. He always talks about, you know, how important that first one was. And, and, and you know, the 100 for him was always the sort of, you know, I don't know this event the way I know the other ones. Um, he had run one in Kingston. He had broken the world record in New York. He had uh, won his Olympic trial, so that's three. I think it was his fourth final um, in the 100 meters in his career. So, um it, it really was the moment, I think, of his uh, of his career. I think the the just sheer audacity of slowing down makes the race just so memorable for me. I mean, you're a coach now. Uh, how crazy would you have gone at, at him for for celebrating or showboating before the end? <laughs> I'd have I'd have been upset. Um, on the broadcast, I sort of exclaimed at the time. He threw away a nine five. Um, the fact that he ran 9.58 the year after in Berlin um, sort of validated that claim. But, um, yeah, I, I had an athlete win the, the World Under-20 Championships a couple of weeks ago, and she didn't run all the way through. As a coach, it's exasperating because as an athlete, I remember, and, 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 and we're all taught this, the easiest, the, the, the personal best always feel like the easiest. So you feel like you're going to get back there any time. Uh, Usain Bolt never got back to 9.5. So he could have had not, two 9.5s in his career, um, and that would have, would have been it. Um, because those performances feel easy, you feel like you're going to be able to do them at any point. Sometimes you just have that one or two nights in your entire life when everything comes together, everything's working the way it should. So as a coach, you get exasperated, like, why would you throw that away? But um, in this case, I think the the beauty of it um, sort of negates whatever, you know, whatever uh, purest intentions I would have of, of him just running through the line because it um, we don't have another race like it in the sport ever. That's it. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because without him slowing down, would people be, would it be so memorable without the celebrations? It, would, it wouldn't. It was so iconic that you don't want to change it, basically. I, I was going to say as well, the, uh, I discovered, and I didn't know this, that his shoelace was untied in the race. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we, uh, we we caught it in the replay and we just thought, you know what, though, That's, that was Bolt, though, right? His, his, uh, his top is not tucked into the, uh, to, his, to his shorts, to his, uh, to his tights. Um, the shoe is untied 
and you know he takes the last basically third of the race off that is what endeared him to and i don't know if i understood that that night cuz i think that night i felt like oh, that was maybe a little bit a little bit too much uh, celebrating the Jamaicans were happy about about my saying that but i i, I, I truly felt it uh, i felt like eh, you don't want to be turning around in the direction your competitors crossing the uh, the olympic finish line but i think what i didn't understand at the time because we had never seen anything like this and we never experienced anything like this is that that was genuinely who he was and it wasn't a hey look at look at me i'm i'm showing the you know the other seven guys up it was i am having this much fun doing this thing and that's what endeared him to the world and a lot of people never got that and you know there, there are occasional people who saw you know bold he was such a show bold and i i, I can categorically disagree i think that once you learned his personality and, and understood who he was um what endeared him to the planet is that he took everybody on his back in the most pressure-packed situations you were worried for him you rooted for him and then he approached it as though what me worry and it and that's what really made him the legend that he became I try my hardest all the time. It's like, it's, I'm one of those people that I can't help but I, like try my hardest. And he's there, not even trying his hardest. On the biggest night of his life, in the 100-meter final, with like millions of people, people watching it. And I guess for some people, that kind of doesn't embody the Olympic spirit. But then when you see, there's this pure joy in watching Usain Bolt enjoy himself. Never mind being Usain Bolt and actually running like that because he's just clearly absolutely having the time of his life. So, I mean, how much do you think that it actually it does embody Olympic values? I look back at, at my generation, right? So my generation was Donovan Bailey, Frankie Fredericks, Dennis Mitchell, Maurice Green. And I look at us before the starting line and everybody's all stoic and, you know, it looks like a fight, a fight's going to break out. And then I look at the boat generation. For the most part, they were a lot friendlier they shook hands before the race they congratulated they they um they, they did more congratulating of each other after the race and i look back at that and i go huh that's something that my generation got wrong because i think if you have um kids and young adults around the world looking at what the olympics should be it should be more of what bolt was about and a little less of what we were about we didn't know any better and that's and, and that's fine but um i really do look back at um at, at some of his races and go, that's the way you should approach it. Now, of course, <laughs> it had to take supreme confidence, um, the supreme confidence of both to even be in that sort of a, of a, of a frame of mind. Because, yeah, if I know I can run 9.6 or 9.5 and nobody else in the race can run 9.8, I can go in there <laughs> extremely confident. But um, it is something I look back and I go, that, that was a really good example. There was other people in that race, of course. <laughs> uh, the, the man who came second was Richard Thompson. I'd forgotten, but when I rewatched it, he went absolutely crazy after that. <laughs> he went, I've never seen, I don't think I've seen anyone go uh, as crazy as that. I'm trying to think, but I can't recall at the moment. Have you ever spoke to him about the race? I mean, he's also from Trinidad and Tobago. Richard and I are, are, are pretty close. In, in, in fact, I coached Richard um, very recently but back then i had just recruited him to my uh to my club and uh he and i uh had the same manager during our careers and he called me um before after the the, the first round and he had a conversation with me and essentially he was a little concerned because he says wow you know are you seeing what what both is doing and 
I, I said immediately to him, I said, listen, forget about both. There's nothing that you, Jesus, or the 12 disciples can do about what both is probably going to do in that race. I said, but you need to get out amazingly hard. He said, I said, oh, when Bolt goes, you just hang on to him and you'll be fine. So um, it was a real thrill for me. Richard was the next uh, Olympic medalist after me from Trinidad and Tobago. It was a real thrill for me to see him um, react that way. And, yeah, I, I tease him sometimes and say, yeah, you know, you're, you're the happiest silver medalist ever. But given, you know, Richard, I don't know if Richard ever saw himself as being an Olympic medalist. He went on to, to win three. But I never, I didn't, I don't know that Richard ever saw himself as a hundred meter um, Olympic medalist until that year. So it's, it's, it's the relief of winning your first um, Olympic medal. But I think it's also him just being elated that uh, you know nobody else besides Bo beat me, <laughs> and this race is going to be shown a lot. One of the things uh, that kind of struck me in the documentary I Am Bolt was when Ziggy Marley, Bob's son, uh, said that he admired admired that Bolt had achieved all that he'd achieved without losing his identity. Now, that's a really easy thing. Everyone would be like, well, of course I'll do that and not lose my identity. But actually, the more I think about it, it's so hard to do because really it's a normal part of becoming an elite athlete. You leave those parts of your personality because it's not you're not focused, you know, if you're not doing those things you know, you've got to get up at a certain time. You have to go to bed. You have to eat right. I mean, how much is losing your identity a normal part of of an, becoming an elite athlete? I think particularly with the world's fastest man, and I was around the, one of the prior world's fastest men, Maurice Green, and I sort of saw it firsthand. It's not the racing that gets you. It's not even the training. It's being called upon to be the world's fastest man for appearances and ads and just having to be that person and be on all the time. So, you know, when Maurice was the hungry kid coming up, um, it was different. You know, nobody wanted him for photo shoots and for TV shows and so on. And your training had a certain very strict regimen. And then I saw, you know, after 1999 and into 2001, I, th I think 2001 was the last really good year that Maurice had. Um, yeah, it became, it became a frenzy. Bolt, not only did he not lose his identity, I think Bolt never lost any of, you know, what exactly what he was prior to 2008. And he became a very uh, fierce champion for Jamaica. If you wanted to go and, and film Usain Bolt, he required that you hired you know, a certain number of, of, of locals to, to be a part of it. He, he became a, a huge advocate, not just for his country. And, and of course, you know, some would say he's probably the, the second most popular Jamaican ever behind Bob Marley. Um, but he, yeah, he really became... Uh, an ambassador in every sense of the word, not just athletic, but uh, but in every sense of the of the word. So the focus versus showboating, as a coach, uh, the received wisdom is to kind of block out the crowd, as you were saying, and totally just stand on the, at the start line, totally concentrating on yourself, kind of almost meditating, basically. But Bolt kind of embraced the crowd, and they absolutely loved it, and it was adored for it as well as as winning. But what do you tell? the people who you are coaching? 
<laughs> well, I have two videos that I show of pre-100 meter focus. The first one is Linford Christie in 1992 in Barcelona before the sound of the gun in, uh, in the 100 meter final. Linford almost looks like he's in a trance. He's barely blinking. He looks like he is in full, he's in full meditation. And then you have Usain in 2008 who is looking left, looking right. He's doing the to the world pose. He's looking up in the stands. Um, I tell my athletes I want them somewhere, somewhere in between. So not quite in the trance, but I also don't want you. You know, at the end of the day, the 100 is like a choreographed dance. And my athletes have to respond to the gun, go through their drive phase, and then, um, and then come out of that and, and maintain until the finish line. Um, I coach young athletes, so maybe they will grow into, you know, to have the sort of prowess where they can, you know, where they can sort of embrace the crowd and sort of everything else will come instinctively and they can just worry about, you know, what, you know, what, what, what they're doing now as opposed to what they have to do after. But um, I, as a coach, I, I just think that that's what made uh, both that that much more amazing because I think people would be at home and you're stressed at home watching him, and he is on the starting line looking like, you know, he hasn't a care in the world, and this is just, you know, this is just nine seconds I have to take care of. This is just nine seconds that's going to interrupt, you know, the party that is my life. I don't think there's has been anyone. In, certainly in my lifetime, where you kind of supported the, the favourite. He's like totally not the underdog, but you'd be gutted if he lost. You know, he always, every single Olympic Games came around and there was always something where you were like, I really hope Usain Bolt wins. Yeah, and I think that towards the end of his career, I mean, he would eventually lose at the at the World Championships uh, in 2017, and, and that was really his only uh, his only loss in a championship. But towards the end of his career, he started to have some some real close calls, uh, particularly with Justin Gatlin. And I could always tell in his pre-race antics how much um, how much confidence he had. Uh, not that he would ever lack for confidence, but I felt like you could see by by the pre-race sort of demeanor how he knew. For example, in 2015 um, and in 2017, look, I can't, I don't have, I'm at the age and I'm at the point in my career where I don't have a lot of energy to waste here. So I cannot be doing, you know, pre-race posing and posturing because this race is likely to be pretty close. Um, and that actually, if you go through his career, the more he did pre-race, I think the, the bigger the margin of victory. It's almost like, yeah, I know, I know I have a bigger engine here and this is not going to be close. But towards the end of his career, if you pay attention to his, uh, to his pre-race uh, sort of antics, you would see that, um, yeah, he, he sort of he sort of bottled that up because he knew he was going to need it to actually run the 100 meters and, and maybe even have to lean at the line. Olympic Channel Podcast. Thanks to Atto, who was super generous with his time. So, do you remember where you were and what you were doing when Usain Bolt won in Beijing? I was at my first job in the newsroom of Satanta Sports News in London and I can vividly remember watching it on a tiny monitor and screaming at the end with the rest of a rowdy newsroom. I mean, it was probably the moment of the sporting year. 
Cast your mind back to where you were. We would love to hear from you about it. Hop on any social platform with the hashtag Back to Beijing 2008. We are at Olympic Channel on all socials, so give us a tag. That would be very nice indeed. And we'll be marking a few of the other big events from Beijing 2008, so keep an eye on our handles for more of that. Olympic, Olympic Channel, Channel Podcast. Podcast. Everyone who got in touch over the past week about last week's podcast with the truly amazing Keegan Randall, thank you. She won gold in Pyeongchang 2018 in cross-country skiing. Less than three months later, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She spoke to me in a pink wig less than 24 hours after shaving her hair because of the treatment. Spencer Milton Manouk sent me a direct message on Instagram saying it was a super powerful interview and at Miyoko underscore Junsai tweeted to say, Dear Cancer, please leave Keegan Randall alone. Big love to Keegan and I highly recommend having a listen to that episode. For a podcast recommendation this week, I've talked about him before, but the Rich Roll podcast with Boston Marathon winner Desi Linden was superb. Huge fan of both of those people. Great to relive that race with her as well. Well worth jumping on. I've got a few more thank yous to give out. Yvette Michael for setting up the interview with Atto. But also an overdue thank you to Matilda Lorm and Ekaterina Kuznetsova, who do some producer work too, and also run the social stuff for the podcast. All that's left to say is that if you like this show, give us a five-star review on iTunes, preferably, but just giving us a shout-out on any social platform is always welcome. And subscribe for the best Olympians talking about the biggest Olympic talking points every week. Press that button right now. That's it for now. Until next time. Think like an Olympian.